Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. Cornell is going to be preaching tonight, so Cornell, please make your way to the front. Um, yeah, I think most of you know Cornell quite well by now. Um, I met Cornell on our first mission trip. Um, when we went to Malawi, and I think Cornell was only six months saved then, um, which, which I found hard to believe because I, I, I felt like he had such depth in his relationship with God. And I remember, I don't know if you'll remember this, but I remember at the end of mission trips we do um, affirmation sessions where we, we kind of just affirm each other as members of the team after having been on the mission. And um, I remember saying to Cornell that um, I felt like the Lord was saying, um, the kind of the trajectory, the growth trajectory that he was on in terms of growing in his relationship with God um, was a steep one and, um, and doesn't have to change, that God would actually maintain that if Cornell allows him. Um, and just from the fruit that I see in your life today, Cornell, um, I can really testify to that, that growth. Um, so we're really excited to hear what the Lord has laid on your heart. Cool. Let me just pray for you. Father, we thank you for Cornell, Father. We thank you that you have appointed him to, to share the word with us tonight, Father. And we just open up our hearts, Lord, to hear from you, Father God. We just say we are hungry for your word, Lord. And, um, yeah, God, make our hearts fertile soil, Father God, so that we might receive what you're saying. Thank you that you go ahead of Cornell, Lord, that you um, guide his thoughts, God, and you guide his heart um, and the words of his mouth, Father. In the name of Jesus, amen. Awesome. Yo, it gets me so excited to see all the new members that are joining our church. Me and my wife have been here for just under a year now in Joburg together. And um, I don't know which one, which, or if any of you came from Cape Town. But like when I came here from Cape Town, I was really skeptical about Joburg, like I guess any good Cape Townian. But, um, but yo, we've been, a, we've been members here um, now for just under a year and we love it, eh? Joburg is the place to be. I don't want to go back to Cape Town. Just want to put it out there. So, um, yeah, tonight, the first thing I want to do is I want us to turn 2 2 or 3 3 to one another and just tell each other what your favorite book is in the Bible and why. Okay. Okay. I see some people have taken this opportunity to do mini sermons on their favorite books of the Bible. Okay, so I'm interested. Let's see who, who said that their favorite book is one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Okay, Henny. <laughs> cool. Pastor must say one of the Gospels. No, I'm joking. Okay, who, that's, that's cool. Who said um, Proverbs, either Proverbs or Ecclesiastes? Ah, the wisdom books like me. I like Ecclesiastes. Who said Revelations? You said, okay, the prophet among us. Okay, who said Job? One. Okay, yeah. Um, it's very rare that I hear people say their favorite book in the Bible is Job. And I kind of understand why, right? It's not really the easiest book in terms of the way that it's written or in terms of the content that it deals with. But recently I read through the book of Job and I was absolutely fascinated by it. 
it kind of blew my mind. And um, that in conjunction with hearing some of the stories of people in church and what people are actually going through inspired me to preach about it tonight. So we're going to have a look at the book of Job. And one thing I learned about the book of Job is that it's probably the oldest book in the Bible in terms of when it was written. I did not know that. But I find that quite significant because the book of Job handles around a question. And clearly, if it's the oldest book in the Bible, this question has been around at least since the start of biblical history. And it's still extremely prevalent today. When I did like a Google search of what is the question that Christians get asked the most, this was usually top of the list. And in my own experience, I found that this is a question that especially people who don't believe in God often ask me. Um, And also, I found it that it's almost like a stumbling block sometimes for people. It's something they say, because this question goes unanswered, they find it hard to believe in God or even turn away. So who wants to take a guess at what the question is? Yes. Good, Shauna. Okay, so the question is, if, actually, let me just expand on that. If God is a good God, why is there suffering in the world? Or more specifically, why do the innocent suffer? Really important question. And tonight, what I want to do is I want us to have a look at what the Bible has to say about this question. But first, I want to have a look at the question itself. So, if you think about it, what is extremely interesting for me is that this is a question often asked by people who say they don't believe in God. Because if you think about it, the question doesn't actually make sense without God. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, Christianity creates rather than solves the problem of pain. For pain would be no problem unless side by side with our daily experiences of this painful world, we had what we thought had received a good assurance that the ultimate reality is righteous and loving. And that's from his book, The Problem of Pain. So basically what C.S. Lewis is saying here is that when you ask this question, there's two ways that you can approach it. The first way is if there is no God. But if there is no God, actually there is no problem with suffering or with pain. Because if I were to say, I went through pain or I went through suffering my One of my relatives died in a car accident. If there is no God, there is no explanation. It's just chance. It's just the way things are. Someone more powerful or more stronger than me decided to oppress me because that's what he decided, and there's no explanation needed, right? But how is it then that this question still bothers people who say they don't believe in God so much or that there is an ultimate reality that's that's kind and loving? On the other hand, we have the path that we can take where we say there is a God, and in the Christian worldview, that this God is good and that He is loving, and then this problem gets created. Because the question becomes, how do we reconcile the goodness and the lovingness of God with the pain and the suffering that we see in the world, which we sometimes see as unjust or unfair? So that's what I want to look at tonight. Okay, so hold on to your seats. We're going to do a bit of a helicopter flight over Job. Um, We're going to cover a lot of content, but it's important. And um, you know, then we're going we're gonna to see what the Bible says about this. Ooh. Okay, so the Bible tells us that Job was a man who lived in the east, in the land of Uz, wherever that was. And it actually says he was the greatest man in all of the east. So he was a very wealthy man. In those days, uh, wealth was measured with cattle and with livestock. So he had a lot of possessions in terms of earthly things. 
Not only that, but he was a righteous man. It says he feared God, and he was blameless and upright. And he had ten kids, and he prayed for them, and he kept serving God continually, and he was righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Then the book of Job transports us to the heavenly realm, and it takes us into this kind of divine meeting taking place in the throne room of God. And it says a lot of the sons of God appeared before um, God, and amongst them was one called the Satan, okay? And his name literally means the adversary. Now, in the context of the rest of the Bible, we know that this is the devil who um, led a rebellion against God and tries to upset his plans. Okay, and God actually starts this conversation with Satan. And he says, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So I don't know if you guys have ever seen that video of Chad LeClose's dad after he won the Olympic gold medal. That's kind of what God is doing here. Okay, he's like, look at my son Job, he's awesome. Okay, and then Satan replies and he says, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So this brings up one of the very important questions of Job, and that is, is God alone enough? And Satan is saying no. Job is serving you for the perks, God. You have given him a lot of material possessions. You've put a hedge around him. Maybe Satan's already tried to kind of get in with an attack or something and didn't work because there was a hedge around him. And he says If you take all of these things away, if you take the perks away and you take the blessing away, Job will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So the Lord gives Satan a limited authority over Job to touch everything that he has. Okay, and then Satan went and he devised the plan. He devised the attack against Job. And this was a very specific attack with one purpose, and that was to get Job to question the character of God. And this is how it went down. So Job was sitting in his house, and one of his servants come in. Okay, And he says to him, Job, we were in the field, and the Sabians came, and they they killed all of your servants that were in the field, and they took all of your oxen and your donkeys. And at this point, Job is probably like, okay... That sucks, and the Sabians are bad. I'm going to get them back, and I'm going to go get my donkeys back. Okay. But even before that guy finishes speaking, the next guy comes in, and he says, Job, we were in the field, and this is what he says. He says, the fire from God fell and consumed all of the sheep and the servants that were looking after them, and I alone have escaped to come and tell you about us. Now, this creates a problem, because the Sabians are a group of people with free will, and they can make choices to, to do whatever, but... Now a servant comes in, he says, the fire of God fell, which is probably some natural occurrence that consumed the sheep. And Job would have seen nature as being controlled by God. So this would have turned his eyes upwards and raised questions. Then, before that guy finished speaking, a third guy comes in and he says, the Chaldeans um, have come. We were in the field with the camels and they killed all the servants and took the camels away and I alone have escaped to come and tell you. So at this point, Job has lost pretty much all of his wealth. And then before that guy finishes speaking, a fourth guy comes in. And he says, your children are all feasting in the house of of their oldest brother. And a wind came across the plain and struck the four corners of the house and fell on the children. And they all died. And I alone have escaped 
to come and tell you about this. And at this point, Job gets up and he tears his clothes. And this is where we pick up the story. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's room, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So, at this point, it's kind of like God won, Satan zero. Okay? And Job does not curse God, but he chooses, as the Bible says, to worship. Then it takes us back into the heavenly realm. And there's again a meeting taking place in God's throne room. And there's a, the sons of God are there. And again, God starts this conversation with Satan. And he says, have you considered my servant Job, a blameless and upright, there, that there is none like him in the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still f- holds fast his integrity, even though you incited me against him without reason. And Satan replies and he says, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So again, Satan gives, uh, the Lord gives Satan a limited authority over Job to now touch his flesh, but not to kill him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself um, while, he sat in the, while he sat in the ashes. And his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So heavy calamity hits Job. And the book of Job actually gives us a few examples of how we can respond to suffering or to calamity when it comes. And the first kind of um, example it gives us, two examples, is Job's wife who says, curse God and die, and she just goes, this is too much, or whatever. And the second one is Job, who takes a stance and he says, look, I didn't bring anything into the world. Everything I've received is a free gift. God gave it to me. So, if he wants to take it away, who am I? Okay, and then, the story continues, and now Job is mourning, and his three friends arrive on the scene, okay? Uh, Their names are Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. By the way, how do we know that Bildad was the shortest man in the Bible? It's because his full name is recorded as Bildad the Shuhite. <laughs> okay, that, that's just a joke. <laughs> but these three guys arrive on the scene, okay? And they see that Job is in intense suffering. And for seven days, they don't talk at all. They just sit there and they mourn with him. And obviously in this time, the thinking starts. Job is thinking about what has happened, and he's kind of starting to process it. And his friends are starting to process it through their worldview, and looking at Job and quantifying or qualifying what has happened to him. And eventually, after seven days, they start this dialogue between Job and his friends. And this dialogue is really surrounding two specific questions. The first question is, is God just in his character? And the second question is, Does God rule justly in the earth? And they take different stances. Job says, no, God is not just. And what he has done to me, I don't deserve. He struck me without reason. And therefore, he demands an audience with God himself. And for God to come and effectively explain himself to um, Job. And his friends say, no, God is just. And he does rule justly on the earth. 
And they say, well, then the only reason that we can qualify the suffering is, Job, you must have done something really, really bad to deserve this. You're, because in their mind, sin is directly related to suffering. And that is a, um, a doctrine or a way of thinking that was still prevalent in Jesus' times at least. And I just want to jump there for a second. John 9, verse 1 to 3 says of Jesus, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples said, said, asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? But Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God may be revealed in him, displayed in him. And that gives us a little bit of a hint of what's going to happen in Job. But I just want to park that. And I also believe that that way of thinking is still very prevalent today. You're suffering because there's some open door or something you've done in your life. And I think that's something we have to be very, very careful of. Um, but we're going to get back to that. I just want to want you to keep that in the mind. But this is the approach they take. And eventually he gives up on them. He says, you guys are miserable comforters. You're not helping me at all. I am innocent. And you guys are wrong. So I demand an audience with God. But before he gets that, a fourth guy speaks. And his name is Elihu. Okay, and he's the fourth friend, which doesn't get mentioned to this point. And he's also the youngest. And he offers a bit of a different explanation. He says, no, God is just, and he does rule justly in the earth. But sometimes he allows suffering so that we can learn certain lessons and also so that we can build character. And then after that, God himself arrives on the scene. And he arrives in a whirlwind, and he speaks directly to Job. He gives him the audience he, de- he demanded. And what's interesting is God does not actually directly answer Job's questions, but instead God asks him some questions of his own. And he starts showing him nature. He starts showing him the complex systems in nature, like the stars and the earth and the rain and animals and things that work together perfectly without any intervention of Job or him ever thinking about it before that just work. And he starts asking him, Job, can you make these things work? Are you strong enough that you can call out the rain and it will rain? Were you there when I put these things in place? And what he's basically saying is, Job, if you don't even understand nature to an extent, you've got no control over it, but you trust me to keep it going and to keep the earth and the systems in it working that I created and I can keep it going, how much more ethical issues and justice in the universe. If I'm the ultimate judge and I administer um, good and bad and punishment for bad and, and reward for good, how much more can I not, will you not trust me for um, administering that in the end? And it's basically a question of trust. He's inviting Job to trust him even when he does not understand. And Job sees this. He sees this and he repents and he says it two places. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I, I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice. Oh, I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And again later, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And again, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then he says another line, which we're going to get to now. But after that, God goes to his three friends and he says to them, look, you guys were wrong about me, okay? Sin, basically sin does not directly relate to suffering. And you need to go now and you need to say sorry to Job. And when he prays for you, then I will forgive you. So he rebukes them. Interesting enough, he does not rebuke Eliu. Then 
God actually restores back to Job more than he had before. The Bible says he gave him twice as much as he had before. He gets all his kids back. His friends and family come around him and they comfort him. And it says he dies a hap- well, basically prospering and full of days. Okay, and which is interesting because what I want you to notice here is it's not like that final restoration was a reward for Job's good behavior during his time of suffering. You see, Job was a righteous sufferer, but he wasn't a perfect sufferer. Job's righteousness was not because he did everything right. It was because of his relationship with God. Actually, he didn't always handle the situation right. It's more like God was giving him a free gift by this restoration and what he was giving back in his sovereignty and his wisdom more than it was a reward for his good behavior. And um, I just want to go back to this one line. So the thing about being righteous and in right relationship with God, throughout the whole process of Job, I don't believe his position in his covenant relationship with God ever changed. I don't believe his position in relationship with God changed. Yes, he asked questions, but it didn't change, except for one thing. Okay, and it's captured in this line that really stuck with me. Job 42, verse 5 to 6. He said, I had heard of you before by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And um, when, when Job, what I believe happened is through the process of Job's suffering, he saw a, a part of God which he had never seen before, and there was a deepening in his intimacy with relation, in relationship with God. Now, I just want to share a story from my own life when I have gone through something that helped me to understand this a little bit better. So I've talked about this in church before. Let me just get a drink before I start. I've talked about this in church before, but I grew up, my parents got divorced when I was five years old. For 18 years, they didn't speak to each other. Um, There was lots of tension in the house, lots of pain because of divorce, lots of things that came from that. And then I went to university, and I became a Christian. I surrendered my life to the Lord, and He started convicting me to pray for my parents and to pray for their relationship. And I prayed, not always as faithfully as I could have, but I prayed um, for two and a half years without seeing much change. I remember when I just got saved or gave my heart to the Lord, I, had a, I changed a lot. And my mom thought this was really weird. She thought, actually, that chauffeur was a cult and that I'd been pulled into this thing, because now I wanted to go on, like, missions trip and do all this stuff, and she thought, like, whatever, that's very strange, and she was worried. But then about two and a half years in, she started doing Bible school at the church, and I went to her, and I said to her, Mom, well, what's up, you know, (laughs) I thought that, and she said to me, no, she could see that me and my friends had a real love for one another, the friends I brought home, and that's what started changing her heart, and I actually saw her starting to walk in a more intimate relationship with God, my dad as well, he married again. Unfortunately, things started going a little bit rocky in his new marriage. Um, and I saw him also cry out to God, asking God for help, and also walking in a closer relationship with God. So both of them um, came closer to God, but there was no change in their relationship with each other yet. And then in my fourth year, I was, I was visiting my dad one weekend, went back to Stellenbosch, um, and got a phone call from my stepmom who told me my dad had just had a stroke and that he was in Panorama in Cape Town and I need to come. So I got in the car with a friend, and we drove through. I remember driving through that night. Obviously, I was emotional, but I just felt God say He's in control. And I got to my dad's bedside that night, and it was horrible to see him in the state that he was in. Um, in. In that period in his life, 
in terms of his work, in terms of his marriage, and now in terms of his health, things were really going rough. And it was tough for me to see him like that. I like, as a son, you don't, you don't want to see that. And I just, I spent the night with him and I went back home. Um, and the next morning, my mom phoned me and she was crying. And she told me she just got off the phone with my dad and she forgave him for everything that had happened. And um, two days later, my dad came out of hospital, completely clean from the stroke, praise the Lord. And he came to our house and he had lunch with me and my mom. And it was the first time in 18 years I saw them speaking to each other and laughing. That was a weird experience for me. <laughs> like, really, really weird. But obviously, it was a miracle. It was a miracle restoration. And after that point, I started seeing a lot of change in my dad's life. And my relationship with him also got better. I remember he phoned me that year on my birthday, and he said to me, Cornell, I know I don't say this much to you, but I love you and I'm proud of you. And it meant a lot. Um, we had a chance, we had opportunity to speak through a lot of the things that had come from the divorce, lots of the issues and stuff, not to go into the detail, but we had a chance to speak about those things and to forgive each other. And I remember sitting at men's camp that year next to my dad after one of the sessions, um, and he was just kind of sharing advice with me about life, and I was listening and receiving it and thinking to myself, you know, for, what was it, 21, 22 years of my life, I basically didn't have a dad. And now I've got a dad. And it was like, it was super special. I was just really thankful to God. Um, and I also saw change, like, in my dad. I saw a joy, even though things were going really, really rough in the natural, I saw, started seeing a joy in my dad that I hadn't seen before. He started um, phoning me and telling me about, like, how God was giving him dreams and speaking to him and giving him visions and encouraging him. I remember one one um, weekend we went to the rugby, and just before we left, there was this car guard, and I felt God say, I must pray for this car guard. So I go and I pray for this guy, and just ask him what's wrong, and then prayed, and we left. And two weekends later, my dad came back to the rugby, and he again, I couldn't join him that weekend, he finds this car guard, and he goes to him, and he's like, hey, my son prayed for you two weeks ago, do you remember? And next to them, there's this lady sitting in a car with her window down. And when he says this, this lady just starts like crying and crying. And he goes to her and says, what's wrong? And she opens up to him about, like, how her life is really falling apart and how she doesn't know what to do and how she could really just use prayer. And my dad had the opportunity to pray for her that day. And he reports this back to me, like, all excited, you know, like, that God, well, you know, I was super amped that God was starting to use him. And then um, that year in, and I saw him make a lot of bold faith moves that year, just there are really things that didn't really make sense in the natural, but that God was challenging him with in, in faith in his work and in his family. And that year in August, he went to Uppington to a farm there to receive ministry um, for two weeks where he was without signal. And I was preparing a sermon actually to preach in our George congregation at the time. And around the 30th of August, I got a phone call from a doctor. No, 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 from a farmer, the farmer. And they told me that my dad had had a second stroke. He went for a um, nap. And he had had a second stroke, and they didn't know what to do. So they called an ambulance. Eventually, he was on his way to the hospital. I didn't know what to do. So I kept on preparing my sermon, and I was starting to travel to George. And I got a, on the way there, I got a phone call from the doctor who told me that things were not looking good and that I should come as soon as possible. So I phoned my mom. She came to George, and we started driving through um, to Uppington through the night. But on 
the 1st of September 2014 at 2 in the morning, the doctor phoned me again and she told me that my dad had passed away. And um, I remember sitting in the car and just being almost like broken, not understanding what was completely going on. But I was determined. I remember going arri arriving at the morgue at 5 in the morning, forcing them to show me his body um, because they didn't want to originally, and laying my hands on him and praying for my dad and asking God to raise him from the dead. But God didn't. And I walked out of there. Oh, come on, Cornell. Don't cry. I walked out of there, and I remember just thinking, um, you know, God, I don't understand at all, but I trust you. I trust your timing. That's all I could say. And I went back to Stellenbosch. Um, I arrived home, and some of my friends that came and brought me some food and sweets, they were kind of like Job's friends before they started speaking. And um, they were just there. And that really, really helped and the people who came around me in that time. And there's nothing really that someone can help or say that will really help in the first while, but just having them there helped. And um, after that, uh, a process of mourning started. And in those first two weeks, I just remember spending a lot of time walking in Jonkershoek and next to the Eerste Revier, um, talking or, you know, remembering my dad and crying and just missing my dad and talking to God and asking the questions, going, God, you've done so much in my dad's life in this last year especially. Why now? Why, like, the one thing which I was the saddest about, I knew my God had a relationship with Jesus. Praise God. I knew where he went. But why now? I wanted to see this play out, you know. And two weeks after that, I was scheduled to speak at a conference in Ukraine. So I flew over decided to go to get away from everything. And I spent three weeks there, two weeks of which was in, with a pastor and his family in the west of Ukraine, staying in their house. And I remember locking myself in my, morn in my room one morning and for 45 minutes just sitting there and crying and like weeping. And the thing is, it wasn't primarily because I was sad. Yes, I was still emotionally raw. And yes, um, obviously, you know, it's something that takes time to work through. But that morning I wasn't sad. It was like I was sitting there and I could tangibly feel the presence of God. Like I was sitting there and I don't think I've ever in my life experienced God that tangibly and that close to me. And I can't explain it. But it was like he was just holding me. And for the first time in my life, I... Ex I could honestly say I know what the Bible means when it says the Holy Spirit is our comforter and I sat there and I cried obviously and also God led me to read a sermon by Charles Spurgeon and um, he started speaking to me through this and he's into my character very specific stuff but he started speaking to me about purpose and about manhood and about <laughs> carrying on and he strengthened me through that experience and I learned something very valuable in that time. And that is that when you're suffering, presence is really important. What got me through those days were the presence of my friends who came alongside me and family and comforted me, even, but even more the presence of God, knowing that I'm not alone, knowing that there's a God who understands and who loves. And I think that the worst type of suffering which you can experience, is abandonment. Going through something like that and not having anybody 
to comfort you. Ultimately, on the ultimate level, not having God. And you know, the good news is that Jesus Christ on the cross took that suffering so that me and you never have to. Job was, was a righteous sufferer because of his relationship with God. He was not perfect. But Jesus was the righteous and the perfect sufferer. And he came to earth to save the very people who eventually rejected him and crucified him. And when he was hanging on the cross, there was that one moment where he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The moment where God the Father turned his face away from Jesus and he was alone. And he did that for you and for me. So that we never have to experience being completely alone. The Bible says that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we know that God is always with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. That's what the Word says. And it's not like He's a far-off God who cannot relate to our problems and our suffering and what we go through. Um, Timothy Keller has this. He talks about the anguish related to losing someone you love. And he says that the anguish which you feel is related to the depth and the length of a relationship. So if you lose an acquaintance, it kind of touches you. If you lose a friend, it hurts. If you lose a child, it's excruciating. If you lose a spouse, it's extremely hard to deal with. But all of that pales in comparison to the relationship and the intimacy between God the Father and God the Son and what God went through when Jesus was sacrificed on the cross because that is a relationship from eternity past. The most intimate relationship that there ever was and ever will be. And he went through that so that we don't have to suffer. And that's what I experienced in that room that day. It was not a God who is far off or a God who, who cannot relate to what I'm going through, but a God who is near and who is close and who is intimate and who is involved. And through that process, I learned a lot. And it's something that you cannot really explain to people, but there's this one, another quote by Timothy Keller where he says that Jesus suffered not so that we would not suffer, because we do suffer. Whether you have God or whether you, whether you follow God or not, everyone suffers. But he suffered so that in our suffering we will become more like him. So like, just like Job was able to say, before my ears have heard of you and now I see you with my eyes, so we can say, whether we're going through the good times or the bad times, we're coming closer to God. And especially when we go through suffering, we can deepen in intimacy with Him. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.